Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. My eating disorder started at seven. You get to that point where you're just, you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge and your daughter's not there. Find someone that you trust more than you trust your eating disorder self. I was in tears and I was screaming at the nurses, give me something to eat. My baby is kicking me. You cannot do this to this life that has no voice yet. There is hope. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the amazing Abby Coleman with me from B105 Radio. Thank you so much for joining me today, Abby. Thank you. I say thank you, but in saying that, I find this really hard to talk about, I guess, and I never do. So bear with me. I am I'm really, really grateful that you're being vulnerable and coming on here to talk about it because I know that it can be really, really hard, but I also can promise you that you sharing your story today is going to save lives. And that's what this podcast is all about. It's about getting rid of the myths and stigma surrounding all of this. By speaking out, you're going to empower other people to seek help or speak out or whatever it is. And, you know, it's really about bringing eating disorders out of the shadows. So I can't thank you enough for joining me today to help us to do that. Thank you. So I'd like to begin with you giving our listeners a little bit of an insight into your journey with your eating disorder. I don't even know if I would be able to give it an age when it started. I grew up in a household where my mother was a health fanatic. And looking back now, I realize that she had her own eating disorders growing up. Any belief that she had of herself would have been transferred onto me. And she still is. She's the best mum. We're so close. We're basically best friends. And because of that, I sort of feel like, you know, she was my idol. She still is. And I looked up to her. We had restrictive eating in our household because she was such a health fanatic. I used to go to my nana's, which was her mum, and this is probably why she was such a health fanatic, and she was all into junk food. And I used to go over to her house at a young age. I would have been like three, and I used to eat until I threw up. That would that was something that it was always known, but I used to always look forward to being able to have junk food. And I always did that at parties as well. My sole focus was to consume food, I guess, that I wasn't allowed to have. So that's always been my relationship with it. And then I started taking drugs when I was at school, but they were prescribed. I had ADD and I was prescribed dexamphetamines. And for someone who had done ballet and had grown up in a household where there was such an emphasis on looks, I was just given like a magic pill. It was also at the time that I started dating someone who was quite obsessed with looks. He was a bodybuilder and he would always be restrictive in what he ate. And I remember I used to be like, I'm going to eat healthy, you know, to impress him. And he would laugh because I'd eaten pasta. And he'd be like, what are you doing? That's wrong. And I remember I was like, oh, my God, I've done something wrong. I thought I'm going to make myself throw up. And at 
that point, I even remember the first time I did, it wasn't a bad thing. I thought, oh, great, now I've solved everything. But then it was when my unhealthy image with food then came into it to then start purging. That cycle was so hard to break. And I remember telling my boyfriend at the time that I did, and rather than him saying, oh, gosh, that's wrong, I remember him saying, well, don't block my toilet. And it was such a thing of like, okay, it was an unhealthy relationship. It really was. But there was just such a combination of everything, I guess, that started. And from there, it, it got really, really bad. But to other people, I kind of maybe had a perfect life. You know, I started working in the media around that time, but always it was just such a private battle. It wasn't until I physically had lost so much weight that my family had started to be concerned. That's when, you know, my, my periods had stopped. I constantly, I was working on radio, you know, and you got a really rough voice from throwing up so much. And I always had sores on my knuckles. You know, I look at that now with other people and you can identify the symptoms that maybe other people can't. Yeah. Yeah, those telltale so I, signs. Yeah, and, and from there I kind of, I still carried on with my life, but I, I was in and out of different um, rehabs and eating disorders clinics as inpatient. But I, I honestly, I don't even know if at that point I was ready to get better and I didn't ever think I would get better. Why? I never thought I would be able to eat a meal and relax I never thought that. I couldn't understand how people could have an enjoyment out of food. For me, it was always an enjoyment when I was binging and I used to binge a lot and it would be just that cycle of it. And I never thought that I would be able to just be comfortable with the way I looked. And you realise now that the happiness comes from in. You know what I mean? Like I look back and I go, the thinnest I was, I was miserable. The biggest I was, I was miserable. It wasn't until I was just okay with who I am. And it... For me, it wasn't, a, I guess, um, one thing that I got better from. It was a combination of a whole lot of experiences. Yeah, I always sort of talk about it like you you garner all these tools into your recovery tool belt, you know, along the way. I mean, I had various therapies myself over the 15 years that I was mm. unwell. And I think, you know, it, it's a combination of you getting to that point where you are so done and you really, truly mm. do want to change above all else and you really take that leap of faith and you dive in, but also, you know, finding those right clinicians that really get you and are prepared to kind of yeah. really challenge you. That's why I admire you because I've never been able to achieve what you do and help others. But for me, those people did. I remember going into an eating disorder, I think it was in Sydney, I've always gone to counsellors or hypnotherapy and they're always like, what does it mean to put on weight? And you're like, God damn it, I don't want to be fat like you. Like, please don't make me like you. And it would be such a fear of it. And then I walked into one eating disorder clinic and the lady said to me, how many times would you be purging? I'd say, well, after every meal, I'll keep down one or just it's what I would keep down from a meal that would be my nutrients. And she said to me the first thing and I was like, oh, wow, she gets this. She said, right, now I want you to stop brushing your teeth after you purge because it's going to affect your enamel on your teeth. I need you to rinse your mouth out only. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she's been here before. Do you know she actually gets it? And it was a practical tip of her not going to stop me yet. She was like, we need to work on a lot of steps. But just from that practical point of view, just little things that can help along the way as we're going to get you to stop it. It's just those people where you go, oh, okay, cool, you get it, because you do. It's such a private battle and you can't imagine anyone else going through this because you're too embarrassed and also I wasn't ready to let go of it. 
And until yeah. until you've been there, until you have literally yeah. lived in that, what is, I describe like a living hell, because it wasn't a life. It was just this miserable existence. And, you know, as you say, from the outside, we function and put on this face and, you know, you're in the photos and you're smiling and all of that stuff. And then internally you are just literally like at breaking point. A lot of the reason why I do what I do now is because I wish that I'd had someone by my side who'd been there, who I could not only mm. see living, breathing proof that recovery was possible, but also that they understood, they got it. They weren't going to say things that were Mm. insensitive or when they did call me out or challenge me on the eating disorder crap, for want of a better word, my eating disorder couldn't run rings around them, basically. Yeah. That's a real value of lived experience. Yeah. If you were to describe to someone what it felt like to be in the midst of your eating disorder and the drugs and the alcohol, like for some people it would be unimaginable to be living a life like that. Like how does it how does it feel and and why can't you just make the decision to stop? You have a lot of hard expectations, you know, like I'm such a planner and I like a goal and that would be every day where I'd make this goal of what I'm going to eat or what I'm not going to eat. And there was such an achievement if you were able to do that. So mine was a constant of setting high expectations and then breaking them. Like the restrictions were so severe that I would always break it and then that would have a lot of shame. And for that point, I'd be like, I'm breaking it. And it was constant, a thing of starting again for me. You know, it's kind of like a diet starts on a Monday. It was constantly like, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it 100% now. So screw that. And I might as well purge now. I might as well eat a lot. And then I'll I'll purge. Do you know what I mean? So that's my my tick. And then it would start again. And I hate to say this, but in in that sense, you get a high from it, whether it's to do with the food or whether it's to do from the actual physical thing of purging, there's a bit of a high from it. And it was just that addiction to that cycle that I still went through. I guess I would I would use drugs and I was just so I, I wasn't responsible in anything I was taking, you know? I mean my, I remember sitting and I was and I was at uni and I was trying to study and I remember thinking my heart rate's pretty high here. It's probably a little bit too high, you know, of all the <laughs> stuff that I'd taken. There was still such a sense of I don't really care. Yeah, there's no sort yeah. of there's you're not thinking about the consequences. You're not thinking long term. No, there was no consequences. It's not that I didn't have goals and aspirations, but I was just, I was so careless in my, in my health. I say when, you know, people talk about eating disorders and they're like, they just want to be thin and they should stop. For me, it's, it's not just the physical thing. It was also that cycle that I couldn't break. And I realise now, and I say to anyone, if you think you can get better by yourself, please reconsider. Because the longer yeah. it went without getting professional help, the harder it was. I'd gone to so many different therapies, but not not consistently either. I didn't yes. really find a lot of things that clicked for me, so I would sort of change. And I was constantly that person where I'm going, I'm going to do crystal healing now. You know, that's my, that's what I need to do. You know, Reiki yeah. is the one that's going to do it, you know. All these things, I guess, that were going to heal me because it was nothing was ever going to heal me from inside. I did find a counsellor that I really did like. Um, we had nothing in common whatsoever. He was a lovely Chinese man in Sydney. And all our therapy was while I wasn't able to look at him during the therapy because he realised that I was someone who liked to feed from other people as a bit of a pleaser. Do you know, read their body language? And he goes, I don't want you to tell me what you should be telling me in therapy. So I had to lay on the couch on the opposite direction. It was interesting, do you know, because I constantly turn around like, did he hype like that? Was that what I wanted to say? Did I, you know, please? And I went to that for three years and that was fabulous for me. 
I think, you know, you're right when you say it's about committing to something. And really, I often yeah. say to my clients, we have what I call Millie's three C's, conscious, consistent commitment. Because I think for me, yeah. when I did finally find what, what helped me get well, it was literal every single moment, every, every single day, conscious, consistent commitment to recovery. Because I mean, it consumes yeah. you, it consumes your life, right? So therefore recovery needs to consume oh, you. In order for it to work. Yeah, it's funny as well. I never wanted a little girl. And um, I guess I got three boys, so there you go. But I was so scared of having a little girl because my mum brought me up with such love and such a beautiful upbringing. But I was like, how can I not mess her up or how can I have a healthy balance? And I kind of go, for me, it was on this focus of not trying to be beautiful, if that makes any sense. When I actually kind of go, yes. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to consciously start focusing on something else rather than physical. Yeah, and pushing yeah. That, that idea of sort of conventional societal idea of, of what yeah. is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel that with the drugs, the alcohol, the eating disorder, it was a way of numbing of sort of, I know for me, I was very, very severed from, from my emotions and my spirit and my soul when I was engaging in all, all the behaviours. Was that something that you experienced as well? It was a way to sort of quash what you were experiencing internally? Yeah, big time. I'm a really sensitive person and it's taken me so many years to be okay with that. I'm I'm emotional. I'm I guess too much for a lot of people. And growing up, my dad's very sensible in his emotions, and I was always just too much. And I and I kind of go that that was overwhelming, I guess, for me and also for other people. So it would always be to to squash it. And it took me for years walking mm. around going, how do I feel about this? And I constantly do that in my day to day, you know. But for me now, it's actually saying like feeling how it feels in my body. You know what I mean? But before I would just always squash it and sometimes I go, oh, I'm sorry, that just doesn't sit well with me how you said that. God, that really bothers me. Whew, you know, before I would squash everything. I would numb everything. I wasn't able to, to feel that because it would be inappropriate or wrong or I didn't know how to express it or was I too angry as well. So numbing everything would be the best description I would be able to, to give. And you, I would feel good at that moment. Do you know, like I'd actually feel really mm. good at that moment when I was on drugs or I was on alcohol or or anything and it wouldn't be till after <laughs> that the regret and the, I'm not going to do that anymore would go again and that would only last for a short period of time. Yeah, it was that really vicious cycle. When you were in recovery and you started to, you know, start to feel the full force of those emotions because you weren't able to numb it through drugs or alcohol or your eating disorder, how did you cope with that? Like shit. I would say sitting sitting with emotions is really bad. And I tried for years to do meditation. I still don't, I guess, achieve it. But it's being okay with not being okay. So often we're taught that we should love our circumstances and you should be okay with that. And I'm like, it's actually shit if you don't get into your uni course. It is so crap if someone dumps you. If you are a certain age and you haven't lived out your dream, you know what? It's awful. It's soul destroying, but it's the saying that rather than going, I'm okay. And I always say the term ducking, you know, when like a duck's just happy and beautiful on the thing, but down there, their legs are going, you know, trying to keep afloat. I always use that term where I'm like, it's honestly okay to not be happy with your circumstances and to express that. And once you do, it is just energy that goes out. But I was just using everything to sort of numb that and not feel it. You know, when you're trying to push things down, 
it's it is really hard. Yeah, and eventually, I mean, there's only so much pushing down you can do, and eventually, it's all going to explode out. Yeah, yeah. But I also never thought I had the power to change things as well. Why you was know? it something you just felt? I think it's just something that I felt. I had this high expectation of what I wanted to do with my life and uh, of what I wanted to achieve. And I say I didn't get into the drama school I wanted to go to and that was going to be my life and everything was sort of ruined and everyone was like, it's okay. Um, never really felt like I was connected in a relationship or truly loved for who I was, you know. And when I was dating people when they weren't completely aware of my eating disorder, you never feel like you. they know you. They only love the surface of you. And to not feel accepted and loved and, to be quite frank, still sleeping with someone, it's such an intimate thing that I would always be, I'm okay with it, when often I I wasn't. I, I think because of that I just I feel like I just couldn't change my, my circumstances and I didn't have the power to do it. Yeah, and I think that's a really good mantra. It's okay not be okay. <laughs> yeah. As you say, the more that you talk about it, you own it and go, yeah, no, I'm not. And or I'm not okay with what you said. And I think that's that vulnerability, that authenticity. And there's so much power in that. And knowing that you can, you can change anything. And what you said before, it's also about having a tribe around you, a village around you that's there to support you yeah. no matter what. No matter whether you're having a relapse or or whether you're having a bad day, they're just there unconditionally. And I think that is definitely pure gold in recovery as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, comorbidities are becoming more common amongst people who are suffering with eating disorders. I've never heard that term before, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, you know, having a comorbidity is having another addiction or a disorder as well as having your eating disorder. So you might have, say, anorexia and borderline personality disorder or bulimia and, and alcoholism. So for you, you know, you struggled with the drugs, you struggled with the alcohol and your eating disorder. Was that really challenging to have all three rather than, say, just be struggling with alcoholism or just with the eating disorder? They were all swapping each other out for the other, I guess. To be completely honest, I never saw the alcohol and the drug as an issue, you know? Like it was more the eating disorder deep down that I thought was the issue that I was trying to help. And in recovery from eating disorders and drugs, if things have got really bad, you know, my husband and I were trying for, for children every time that it didn't work out. And of course, I'd be like, oh, great, here's my eating disorder is coming back. This is why I can't have children because of this. And and I'm sure it's got nothing to do with that, but it would always be I would reach out to to alcohol. That was me dealing with stress again, do you know? Like I, I started mm-hmm. to find myself, my husband was working at nights and I drank a bottle of red wine by myself and I was like, oh, my God, I've drunk a whole bottle. I better open a bottle for when he comes home so it looks like we're just having one together. But then I'd drink that as well and then I'd hide them around the house and, you know, put them, and I was like, oh, wait, 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 this is starting to become a problem again. So I went to the GP and asked for the mental health scheme because I am totally okay with asking for therapy at any point that I need it. Um, So I got a referral and I went and spoke to someone. And do you know she didn't speak about the alcohol at once? She's like, what are you feeling out of control with here in your life? And we spoke about those problems. And for me, I need to realise that anything that I'm not addressing in my everyday life that I'm feeling out of control with can lead to me going off on one of those avenues. So that's what I'm aware of now and and I won't allow it. But to get back to your question, for me, they sort of, they're all together, I guess. So when I was, it wasn't like I had to, I guess, get over one of them and, you know, one was harder to get over the thing. It was for me kind of all of them at the same time. And then was that difficult 
you know, when you sought treatment and recovery in terms of, say, I know that I hear of people who go to, you know, a certain facility and, well, they will refuse to treat the eating disorder. They'll treat the alcoholism, but no, sorry, we, yeah. we, we won't help you with your eating disorder. Did you find that difficult? Yeah, I did. That's probably why I went to a private psychologist. I stopped going to psychologist because I felt uncomfortable because I used to go to psychologist and, um, and lie for drugs. So I used to psychologist hop. So I made a pact and probably was already banned from getting any prescription drugs. So I made an effort that I was going to go to psychologists who couldn't prescribe. For me, I found going to see a private psychologist was better because they were able to deal with all of it for me and were allowed to come back to, I guess, the core issue. Which I think is so important because, as you say, at the end of the day, whether whether it's the drugs, the alcohol, the eating disorder, we need, it's the core issue. I call it like the bedrock of all of those things where these are all stemming from and got to dive deep into that and address that. And, and if you don't, then these things are just going to keep occurring. And I think that was one of the hardest things for me to, I guess, to face, to go, okay, I'm going to have to let go of these really damaging, you know, beliefs, values, whatever it was inside if I want to get well. Yes, yes. That, it, it, like you said, that beliefs. What do you think was the turning point for you wanting to go, oh God, I want to live? It was, you know, I'd, I'd gotten unwell when I was 12. So for me, I did not want to die not knowing what it was like to live as an adult. You know, I was, so it was like, okay, I'm either going to never know what it's like to truly live, or I just mm. felt like I owed myself that chance. In my head, it was like, right, I'm going to give this everything I've got. I'm giving it one last ditch attempt. But it really was like, hey, if this doesn't work, I'm out. Like I was so done after those 15 years. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, yeah, for me, that was, that was my experience. Yeah. And that's so young at the age of 12. Oh, absolutely. I was a little baby. Yeah. Were there moments in your journey where you just felt completely hopeless and like, I don't know how I can keep going on? Strangely, not really. I always had some sort of sense of hope and wanted to, what I wanted to, I guess, achieve in my life. But it, I think I gave up on ever getting well. Does that make any sense? It was kind of like this was my yes. life. My life was always going to be a struggle and I was never going to be happy with myself and this was always going to be something that I was doing. And, I mean, I mm. was even – I was filming TV shows and still throwing up, you know what I mean, in bathrooms. So I still – I still was sort of doing my life, if that makes any sense, and it would take a back step at it. So it's not like I ever gave up on it. I gave up on ever feeling normal. I was always going to have a secret. I was always going to be ashamed, and that was it. And then it got to a point, you know, along with therapy of going, imagine if I could just get rid of it all. Like imagine mm. if I could just relax around it all. I did have a lot of therapy, so I'm not going to say he was my saviour, but I remember I had gone back to Adelaide after trying to live my dream as an actor and never making it and, you know, even my parents were like, oh, well, you gave it a shot, you know, and I was like, oh, for God's sake. And I moved back to living at home in my, you know, single bed and I was like, what the hell am I doing with my life? And I was kind of solo with it that I had stopped. I was sort of in recovery mode from that and I'd put on weight and I was bloated and everyone said, oh, you don't look well. You know what I mean? The one moment where you're stopping everything and everyone starts to say you don't look healthy and you're like, what about for the last 10 years? And I was at that time and I went to a, a party and I was already drunk at the party and I met my, my now husband and I was like, oh, God, I really like him. And we went out for dinner on the first date and I said to him, look, I've got something to tell you. I'm actually just recovered from 
an eating disorder that was really bad for years. He goes, oh, okay. And he's such a surfy bogan. I was like, he's really not going to understand the complexities of me. And he said, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, they're really awful. I can understand how that consumes your life. Um, We're not going to do that anymore. And he just sort of said that and I thought, okay, cool. And then he went on to explain that his sister-in-law is anorexic and he really wishes he could take away that pain. I was like, oh, wow, you know, here's someone that's not going, I wish I could make her eat, you know, like if she just started eating, she'd be fine. He said, I wish I could take away her pain. For me, there was such a, a connection of understanding and this was just, I'm not saying it's him, it was me allowing myself to actually be loved for the first time. It was that love where you kind of like I was at the lowest of low and he was a guy going, I really like you. I go, I'm actually okay. I can start liking myself. And when I started having what I thought would have been a fulfilling life, I started to focus on other stuff and not the eating, the drinking, the drugs. When am I going to be eating this? When am I not going to be eating this? When's my next time that I can take drugs? You know, I just started focusing on other stuff and I was like, oh, cool, maybe I want to make a life of this. I love that he said to you, okay, well, we're not going to do that anymore. It's just beautiful. That just make it just warms my heart. I mean, how did you feel when, when you opened up and, and that was the response you got? I mean, was that what you were expecting? No, not at all. I didn't think he'd have any understanding. And to make this even seem like more far-fetched, because I know that you would understand, but I went for dinner with him, you know? <laughs> like I was at dinner with a guy eating, which is so bizarre. And we went to this really fancy restaurant and I felt comfortable because the meals were small. So when we walked back, we stopped at Macca's and it was after he had reached out and I remember him actually touching my hand saying, we're not going to do that anymore. And it was, we're not going to do that anymore. Whoa, I guess I'm not. I'm actually not. And it was such a sense of strength because we're in this that I went to Macca's, (laughs) do you know, on the way home and I ate a burger with him and It was, there was no panic after, you know, when you just get that panic, you know, that you just go, what? There was no panic with me eating a burger and I'm okay with it. I still get a bit of a trigger hearing things at times. And still to this date, I felt uncomfortable when people comment on if I lose weight or put on weight. If someone says I I lose weight, I guarantee I'll put it on the next week because all of a sudden I'm saying they're they're monitoring, if that makes any sense, and I still feel Mm -hmm. uncomfortable about that. And I still will, I will never ever, and like I mentioned earlier, I I get very upset with this emphasis on girls are pretty or beautiful and, you know, friends of mine that go, it's so important for me to tell my daughter they're beautiful every day. And I'm like, why? I don't get that. You know, you can tell them that they're talented and they run faster, they're a good drawer or the way they put their clothes Mm -hmm. together is spot on. But to constantly tell someone they're beautiful and that's an attribute that they need to live up to or live down to, I don't, you know, I don't say to my boys every morning, you're so good looking, you know, so then why would we Yeah, it's dangerous. Why would we have such an emphasis on saying that you're you're pretty? And I I Mm. get so obsessed with making sure that girls, and don't get me wrong, I know men as well, of course men as well, that they're so attached to attributes that they have the power to change. You know, if you want to be a fast runner, you get out there and you run fast. But I can give you compliments on things that you can change. I can say that you're a good reader or they're creative. And I mean, genuine compliments. But to always be so obsessed with physical attributes, where do people go with that? Does that mean they always have to be that look for you to admire them? 
does that mean that they have this expert, you know, that you have this expectation that they're always going to be there and that's an important thing? Like to make someone feel beautiful, I personally believe you need to focus on other attributes. That's what makes someone feel beautiful is to feel like they're loved by not just something that, you know, maybe meets the eye, it's actual something that they can change or have the power over or feel proud of. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's because otherwise when we comment on it and we focus on it, all it does is make people think that their self-worth is dependent Mm. on how they look. And it's just so not, you know, and if you're hanging around with people who only love you for what you look like, then you're hanging around with the wrong people. I mean, and I think it is really, really hard, especially for, you know, as you say, the younger generation. It's so hard because we are in this really fat phobic diet culture obsessed society where there is Mm. such an emphasis everywhere in the media and social media on appearance. I guess to be able to get around that, I focus on health. It's a hard one mm. as well because when you focus so much on health, what is that? Are you doing keto? Do you know what I mean? Are you doing – and I, that's not what I mean by that, but I focus on – and I say this to my boys as well when I uh, cook dinner and stuff like this. I'm like, you know, you, you have to eat your broccoli because that that's a one that has iron in it. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, that helps you poop as well. You know, so there's everything that we consume in our household has a, a benefit for us, and that doesn't mean that we don't have fun food. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, go for it. You know, enjoy it. Don't feel bad about it. But I think that, that that's – how we sort of get around it in our house because I don't want to be like that's a banned food or that's a good food. Absolutely. <laughs> but do you know that's that's where I kind of go we should be teaching people to focus on their health rather than whether it's going to make you fat, whether it's going to make you thin. And it's about how you feel within yourself mm. mentally, physically, spiritually. You know, if you've got energy, are you feeling vital? That's what we need to be focusing on, not on this labelling of foods as being good or bad, we have to stop that. Like food does not have a moral value. Do you remember eating something on your ban list for the first time and feeling relaxed? Because I remember eating like, I mean, I was saying about Maccas, but then I was like, I've never eaten butter chicken. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Oh, yeah. When you have something for the, I I remember uh, having Cocoa Pops. Just this moment of, I just changed my mind in the supermarket, be like, I want Cocoa Pops. Can I have Cocoa Pops? She's like, of course you can have Cocoa Pops. This moment of, you know, something that I hadn't had since I was a little girl. Here I was yeah. at 27 going, oh my gosh, I've got Cocoa Pops in the trolley. This is amazing. It's a joy mm. and n- nothing of like consuming food or anything. Nothing was a joy. Yes. And there is so much joy and pleasure in it. And I think not only because food is I mean, amazing flavors and textures and all of that, but also because it's often around celebration. I yeah. still, I was laughing with with another friend who who's now fully recovered, but she'd also had a lived experience about how we used to freak out when there was this the shared style stuff where everyone would just order <gasps> and then everyone would share, and it was just this moment of total freak out because you had no way of sort of calculating or figuring out what yeah. the heck was going on. Why are we getting the why are we getting the hummus with the bread as well? And then I'd be like, oh my God, yeah, just crazy, isn't it? I mean now it's just such a pleasurable thing. Yeah, let's get a whole lot and just yeah. share and have different you know, but for the eating disorder at that time, it was like total nightmare meltdown because just can't keep track. I remember like um, I went to one lady, it would have been one eating disorder clinic, and I said to her, like, I don't know what's normal anymore. I don't know. And she's like, normal eating is sometimes overeating. It's sometimes undereating. Like that's what normal is. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not shouldn't be restrictive. Yes. A lot of people will eat too much at a social, you know, range. I was like, yeah. 
cool. And I just remember thinking, I want to be okay. I want to be okay after a meal. And that's what I kind of go, I've always wanted to say to people that you honestly can recover. You might not think you are able to, but you can recover and find enjoyment out of the things that gave you a panic. You can start enjoying it again. Yeah. Yes. And it feels amazing. Yes, it does. Now, did you face any judgment or stigma from from family and friends or, or colleagues around, I know for a lot of the time you were struggling and it was a very private battle, but when people did start finding out, did you face judgment? I was pretty bad. I, di- I didn't really tell anyone even after the recovery. I was speaking about right. it on air the other day and I had a friend of mine reach out going, you know what, we thought it was just drugs and alcohol. And I did have one of my friends reach out and said, I knew at the time, but I didn't know how to deal it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It, it was hard in my family. It still is a little bit challenging as well because mum sort of blames herself. My dad never really understood it and we've never spoken about it. My brothers were really good, but I guess they didn't really understand either. So there was that lack of understanding and they just wanted me to get better. But with work colleagues and that, I never really reached out. It was very much a private battle at the time, so it was kind of a private recovery. But it has been quite hard for me to talk about it because it was so many years secret. And it's not just like six months, as you know, like it's years. Yeah. So I don't know if there was if no. there was any judgment because mine was such a private battle. And you're right. You know, when, it, when it's something that you've just lived and breathed for so long, to start talking about it when you haven't, it's sort of like, oh, I've just said that aloud to people. I feel sad. That's what I feel when I look back. I feel sad and I just wish I could like hug myself then and just go, oh, hun, everything is going to be okay. It really is. And the pain is real and I'm so sorry for the pain, but you will get over it. And there was such, I guess, sort of guilt of saying I've got such a good life. Why am I doing this? You know, why can't I get over this or why can't I improve and what sort of pain is it? You know, has there been any traumatic thing in my life that I am doing this for? You know, people have diseases that they don't want and they can't get over it. You know, why am I doing Mm. this? So there was a a Mm. lot of that, but I just didn't realise that I guess a lot of pain of mine just came through not ever being myself, you know, growing up, that there was only certain bits of myself that I would show and the pain was actually deep down here and, like you said, it was always numbing it for some reason. You know, I was such a loudmouth, but I never had a true voice. Yeah, and it's so interesting to think it's like, you know, I experienced a similar idea of feeling like I had to censor parts of myself or or dampen them down and, you know, not wanting to be too much for people. And it's like, where did we get that? Where did that little bit of self-doubt around that happen? Not that we need to know that in order to get well, I still don't know, but it's like somewhere along the line, you know, as a child, I was just like, you know, happy-go-lucky Millie doing my thing. I didn't think about anything. But somewhere along the line, you and I both started to get that niggling feeling of, oh, we just need to pull back here or we just need to be a little bit less here and then look what that resulted in. Mm. I've just started reading a book which is, um, I don't know if you've read it, it's the one that Adele promoted called Untamed, Stop Pleasing, Start Living. But the lady in there um, talking about her life, she has an eating disorder and alcohol addiction and she talks about that and, you know, she was asking her children if they wanted something to eat and there was a group of boys there and they all both went, nah, but all the girls looked around at each other in the room were like, are we hungry? Do you know what I mean? And at what point do we give up 
trusting ourselves or saying what we want and we start becoming what we should be or what we think people want or the pleasing mode rather than actually pleasing ourselves because maybe we don't want confrontation. Maybe we don't want to, if people don't agree with us, you know, it's all those awkward transactions. And now I kind of go, I feel so comfortable with it, but I'm a lot older now. It's like, how do we give that to younger people? I feel like I wish I could bottle it and say, sit in your truth. But it's so hard to find what your truth is at such a young age. And I think especially now with social media, I was reading a book recently and it was the Insta food diet, how social media has shaped the way that we eat and talking about how what we see online and what is praised and what is almost vilified and therefore how we make food choices accordingly. And it is so, so frightening. Um, You know, you talked about health and, and being mindful that it's not you know, going down that clean eating track and and slipping into orthorexia. I think, you mm. know, orthorexia is almost just so commonplace in society today where you are, you know, obsessed with macros or, you know, whatever the latest yeah. fad is. And it's so sad because the next generation is growing up with that and and this judgment. And people do make comments about what, what people eat. You know, it's like, are you going to have all of that? Or are you having that now? It's <laughs> only like three o'clock or whatever. You know, people, if the more that yeah. people judge our bodies, our food intake, what we choose to do in terms of movement with our bodies, then there's, there is a sense of, oh, am I somehow doing it wrong? I mean, we're all so unique and so different. We just need to do our thing and not be judged for it. And it's always one of those things when you're, when you're doing that or you're doing the macros or something, the whole thing you're, you're doing is you're passing over your power to someone else to make the decisions on what's going to be right for you to eat that day. Do you know it's actually listening to yourself of what you want rather than putting the power over to someone else and saying this is what I should want? Because it's the same idea of if you can't achieve that, then you're failing. And it's the same message, whether it is, I guess, the anorexia or bulimia or putting yourself on one of those restricted diets. It's that same thing of what you should be doing and what you're actually doing and the disconnect between that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, it was sort of like I talk about coming home to myself. Like you can just stand in your own power and just be yourself. And whoever doesn't like that, well, that's their issue. It's not, you know, I was always so obsessed with what other people thought of me. And I remember my uh, neuro-linguistic programming therapist saying to me, how do you know what people think of you? And, you know, I said, well, I do. How do you know? Well, because they tell me. Well, how do you know they're not lying? And it was this back and forth until she had me in this corner where I'm going, oh, so I'm going to spend my entire life freaking out about what they're thinking when I actually don't even know. And so therefore, why don't I just give that one up? Oh, 100%. I think that's what the psychologist was saying to me when he didn't want me to look at him when I was talking because I was so, oh, I saw his eyes then. Do you know what I mean? But if I couldn't see him, then I'm not reading someone's body language and presuming that they're always thinking the worst or saying the worst. I also use the analogy of that I was becoming softer in my recovery. So obviously, you know, I gained a considerable amount of weight. So I was becoming softer in my body, but I was also becoming softer in the way that I viewed the world. It wasn't so hard and fast. I was becoming Mm -hmm. soft in my relationships and allowing people in and just the whole way that I was in the world. It just wasn't so sharp, I guess. 
it is. It's it's a softening of it. You know, when you're having like a bad day and everything starts going wrong, or you know, if someone you have a bad interaction and everyone sort of hates you, and you sort of it's the opposite. If you smile at someone and then you feel good and then it goes about it, I guess it's just allowing people in. You know, when you say that softer, it's yeah. allowing people in, and it's not being like this angry person of you versus the world. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and it's almost I think it's the eating disorder trying to protect itself. You know, don't allow anyone in because they might say something yeah. that might make her have a realization that, oh gosh, this is an existence yeah. that I don't want to be living right now. We're not ready to let go of it. So yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Was social media something that had any influence on the development of, I know for me, when I got unwell, social media wasn't really around. No, but you know what was? Like Dolly magazine. Do you know what I mean? So magazines would have been the same way. And I kind of go, I would, I would, used to always think when I recovered, when I'm president, I'm going to ban those magazines for girls. But now you've just swapped it with social media, which is everywhere. And I don't feel that under a certain age, you should be able to have it. Like how how many times do people just sit there on their phone and go through social media? You check it with yourself and go, how do I feel after? I know myself when I'm going through everyone's stories, their fake happiness, I believe, and I don't feel good about it. So I yeah. go, if, if something's not feeling good, don't do it. If you go on social media and you kind of go after 15 minutes, whew, I feel crap. Or you post a photo and you don't get enough likes and you go, I knew I didn't look that good. Like if any of that's ringing true, take yourself off it for a while. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you come to a place of acceptance with your body now? Yeah. I mean, going having kids would have really done that as well. Like it would have been, you know, that, that thing of like I'm not perfect anymore, you know, if you got a stretch mark or something like that and going, oh, okay, I'm okay with this. It's, it's a yes. weird thing. I still go, oh, I'd like to lose weight sometimes. And I go, oh, why? You know what I mean? Like, why? Yeah. And it's that questioning of going, well, I'm just probably the heaviest. And I'm like, but it doesn't matter. Like, no one around me cares. I don't care. And in saying that, I guess there are people that probably go work, go, oh, she has put on weight, you know. But they're not, I don't really care about their opinion, if that makes any sense. So there yeah. is a real piece with it. Uh, because I kind of go, once you, you're breastfeeding and you go, I love this child so much, I love this child more than my fears of my body not being right. And it's amazing. And I go, you know, the people that are most confident are actually the older people. And you say that when you speak to women, you know, it's the women yeah. in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s going, why the hell did we spend so much time hating our bodies and dieting? And if you can chat to them about their acceptance with the body, you realise that that's where you sit. And that doesn't mean that I get in the mirror and I go, God, I look amazing. I love it. But I just don't have a hatred of it. I have an appreciation of what it's achieved. For me personally, I feel the best when I am working out because I will work out for mental thing. But I also love being strong. And I've, I've got, I would never yes. have done weights in the past because, God, why would you want to put on any weight? But now I feel really happy when I'm strong and I love it that I'm kind of like, I'm going to take on my boys in a running race or I'm going to be able to do that. So for me, that's kind of that thing of fueling my body right and being able to be strong. And there's, and I always think of it this day, my whole life is divided into buckets of marbles these days. So I've got all these little buckets, right? And you've only got a limited amount of yeah. marbles each day. And one of them could be relationship. One of them could be fitness. One of them could be health or the kids. And because you've only got a certain amount of marbles, you're not going to achieve it all. And it's this thing of 
we shouldn't. We're not going to. Some days I'm going to put more marbles in my work and I'm actually not going to be able to see the kids as much. And that's okay. I don't have guilt about it because a couple of days I'm going to put all my marbles on being their mum. So that's where I kind of <laughs> fit about my fitness yeah. these days. And I'm like, yeah. well, I don't have that many marbles to put into worrying about my body. Do you know what I mean? Because the other priorities are more important. Yeah. I love that. Losing my marbles, Millie. I love that. (laughs) I'm actually going to use that. I think it's a really powerful visualization because I think sometimes we get to an end of the day. I know for me, you know, I'm this typical sort of high achiever and it's like, I haven't done this and I haven't done, it's like, well, you only had a certain amount of marbles. That's just a punishment. Do you know you're running through all the stuff that you didn't (laughs) achieve where I kind of go, Oh, did you have a bath? Oh, self-love. Boom, boom, boom. There's your marbles. Do you know what I mean? So that was just your focus of that day was just different. Was it wrong? Was it right? But, you know, sometimes I feel like I kind of go, if I haven't had enough time for, you know, my partner, the marbles are going to be in his little jar. So it takes away the guilt. It takes away the should. And it takes away the thing of, oh, I didn't achieve it right. You just had different different marbles and different jars for different days. I love that. Have you got... (laughs) lasting physical like ramifications from your eating disorder? Um, uh, my teeth are fake, these two. <laughs> I did have a lot of enamel that went away and I had lost a tooth, so I had those sort of coated and stuff, but not really. I think the, the, the periods was a big thing for me and I've had a lot of um, fertility yeah. issues. So I don't know. There is a lot of, I guess, blame if I was going to go down that avenue for it, but we did have a lot of trouble conceiving. And and like I said, like I, I had to really work at it to get cycles back. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's so hard to know. And I think when we think back to what we put our bodies through in different, you know, mm. both in different ways, how incredibly resilient. I mean, you've got, <laughs> you've got beautiful boys, you know, your body's yeah. still been able to do these incredible things. So incredible, I guess, to, to know that you actually can heal physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Yes. Yeah, you can. You can completely. What part of your journey, if you can, I mean, I know there would be so many parts that were challenging, but if there was one part that you could pinpoint as being like, yeah, that was definitely one of the most challenging things, what would it be? I guess there was many years that I was completely alone. Like even my, you know, my mum didn't know, you know, my best friend didn't know. And they were really hard because I was in such a dark place that people only see the coldness, you know, or never giving them a call back or skipping dinner dates or doing reckless activities or things like that. So it would be dealing with interactions when people had no idea and they just thought that you were just being a horrible person. So they were probably my really darkest days of not reaching out to anyone earlier. Because as soon as you start sharing it, there is some sense of, oh, okay, so they're known and they're not running away or now I'm not completely alone with this secret. I need to be accountable to someone. Yeah, I think there's there's a great power in, in sharing and then and that, that sense of accountability. Yeah. Can you share what are some of the sort of tools and strategies that helped you most in recovery to really, you know, let go and move on? As I was saying, sitting in your truth, walking around in every given moment and saying, how do I feel? Because you forget how you feel. And I mean accurately sitting there with an emotion. You know yourself, when you're going through it, there's kind of like you're having interactions, but there's a lot of thoughts going in your head. You know, you're always like back there, not really interacting with people. So to check in with how 
you're feeling at that given moment when people say that and then being truthful with your interactions, I think that would be key. It's wanting something more than this. You do have to be the one that wants to recover and you need to find that reason why it is because your parents, your loved ones, they can take you to clinics and you can try and tick off what you think you should be doing and you can tell a psychiatrist, a psychologist, whoever it is, of what you think your therapy should be. But until you actually go, I find something more powerful than the crap I'm going through. And for me, it was wanting to start a life and going, oh, wait a minute. I, I like this guy. Maybe I do want to have kids. I, I got to, I got to find a way of, of living fulfilling. Um, so it's finding something that I guess that you, that you want more than this. You want to recover yourself and you want more than this as well. And not to be so afraid of yourself. Oh, exactly. I mean, I always say, yeah, okay, I'm sad that I lost half my life to my eating disorder, but I learned more about myself than I ever would have if I hadn't gone through that. And I, hmm. I just know myself inside out. And I think also you learn how to use, you know, my, my personality traits are always going to be my personality traits, you know, my determination, all of those things. It was about, okay, how can I harness those things that are being channeled into fueling my eating disorder? How do I harness them into recovery? Some people don't, you know, really have to come face to face with their inner demons, really have to get to know themselves inside out. And I think that I always look at that as a gift that the eating disorder has given me is that ability yeah. to really, really intimately know myself and know what I need to be mindful of. And I think that's going to be something that's going to really stand me in good stead for the rest of my life. Yeah. But isn't it beautiful mm. as well? You'd be the most unjudgmental person. Because I know I look at myself and I like look at other people now and I really just love the people and admire them. I don't ever have a hatred towards someone. You know, people go, oh, I don't like that person on TV or whatever it is. You can, I guess, accept them for that. You know, like it's it's nice to to walk around and really enjoy other people's companies rather than being so judgmental. And I think that's probably what it's allowed you to be able to do is have that insight as well. Absolutely, that empathy, that real deep yeah. empathy, because you just don't know what's going on for people. We just need we need to be kind, and you don't know how that's going to. You know, just waving to someone or smiling or as you walk along a path can make someone's day. That might be the only human connection they get that day. Who knows? It might be living on yeah. their own, struggling with depression. You just don't know. So if you can just be mindful when you're out there in the world to be kind and not judge, I think it can be much more powerful than we, we realise. And you feel happier as a result as well. Completely. If you could give advice to someone who is supporting a loved one who's going through an eating disorder, what would it be? Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I really am sorry because it's hard and it's frustrating. I think you probably just don't realise how much they do listen to you and they do take it in and they do appreciate it, but every single message you're getting will be saying the opposite. I get that. You'll be rejected at every given moment and that is so hard. But I, I hope that you can continue to love them and get the support that you need because getting support yourself is important as well. My mum did go to eating disorder clinics to get a better understanding but also to find support as well. And I think that was really important, you know, for her because it's tough. It's really tough to love someone who doesn't want to be loved at that point. And the lying's really hard as well. 
and I think to sort of, you know, be there and want to help someone and have them lie to you over and over and over again, that would be so difficult and to still sort of bounce back. But I would say that they're not themselves now and it's not truly them rejecting you. It's the condition that they're in at the moment that's rejecting you. So I would say the same that I say to people that are going through it, you actually can get better and they can actually get better as well and to not give in on them because I would say that at times I look back and I go, was it harder for my mum than it was for me, you know, to watch it and not be able to take it away? And I think like that now as a mum because you want to be able to solve all their problems or take away any of their pain, but it's a journey that you can't. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And unconditional love and holding holding hope for someone, regardless of what's going on or regardless what anyone else is saying, I think is is one of the most powerful things that you can do for someone who's struggling. You do an amazing job to be able to help people. You know that. I mean that. I feel lucky that I truly feel like it's my purpose. Yeah, it was really hard yeah. and it nearly killed me. You've got to remember, you went through that. And like I just said, how hard it is for, to watch people suffering it. You're an emotional person. You're a sensitive person. You're a loving person. You know, you can sense that and you take on other people's pains, you know, and there's a whole bunch of people that you chat to that you want to you wanna make well. So I admire you for taking all that on. you got a big heart. Thank you. Finally... What would you like to say to people out there who are listening today who are right in the middle of it? They're right in the thick of it. They're fighting that war. They're ducking. What do you want to say? They're ducking. They're calm on the outside. (laughs) I would say you can get out of that water and stop paddling (laughs) and it will be okay. Oh, it does get better. Life is really good. It honestly is. And I know that you can't see that at the moment. But you can start getting enjoyment and and looking at the world through different eyes and it's not cliche and it's not corny and you've not just thought it's for other people. It's actually for you. You can find enjoyment, you can find happiness and you're not broken, you're not stuffed, you're not even, dare I say, special and I don't mean that in a bad way, but I want you to know that what you're going through is not completely different to other people because you feel like that. You feel so isolated that everyone else is okay but you're not. But there's a lot of other people that are going through the same thing or have gone through the same thing as well and they are recovered. So at this point, you can be okay with not being okay but have that focus that one day and it's up to you when you want that one day to be. But on that one day, you can actually find joy and you can find happiness and you can eat while being relaxed and enjoy it. I promise you that. You are amazing. I can't thank you enough for being vulnerable and speaking about it. I know that this is the first time you've really sort of dived into it and I feel really, really privileged that you've done that. Just thank you because as I said to you in the beginning, this will help so many people. I know it will. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. I'll be honest, I won't listen back to it, but thank you. (laughs) No, you've been wonderful to chat to, so thank you, hon. There is hope at ended.org.au. This is the End Eating Disorders Podcast, brought to you by BCU, customer-owned banking for you.
This is a Cast Co Media production.